I think that what we're like today's society is kind of characterized by problems with the digital domain. I think the internet has done certain things to communication that are not desirable. And 20 years ago, I started working on something called an attentive user interface, which is now in the iPhone 10. This idea that you can't consume a user's attention forever and think that there's no consequence. You need a filter. You need to filter messages coming in. Who, who do you get a notification from? Who do you not get a notification from? To combat things like, like smartphone addiction, right? And so I think the, the problem, the real problem with the internet is that it doesn't have filters anymore. So I foresee a future where you just have a stack of, of digital paper. It's like thinnest, thinnest paper and, and you can have as many as you want, 20, 20 documents or something like that. And you can either use them to render one PDF document or you can have different apps on them. They're interoperable. They work together as if they were windows on a computer. The only reason we have windows on a computer, by the way, is because we only have one display. So we have to carve out these task, these task areas uh, artificially, you know. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. I love the conversations that make you think and make you dive deeply into different subject matter. Today, we have an incredible guest on the program and an episode that, for me, did just that. We have Professor Roel Vertigal. Roel is a Dutch-Canadian interaction designer, scientist, musician, and entrepreneur working in the area of human-computer interaction. He's a professor at Queen's University in the School of Computing, where he directs the Human Media Lab. And he's best known for his pioneering work on the flexible and paper computers, paper windows, the paper phone, and paper tab. He's also known for inventing ubiquitous eye input. Basically, if you're interested in building better systems that work with humans and electronics, rolls the guy. He's been designing quite a few of the products that have come out over the decades, including quite a bit of technology that went into iPhone 10. This was a quite wide-ranging and interesting episode. We discussed the future of computing and interfaces and why it's not what you think, what's on the near-term horizon in terms of holograms, how technology transfers and transforms society and cultural norms, the big problem in conflicting interests with filter bubbles, fake news, and overly aggressive Facebook, why AR and VR are overhyped and ultimately not the answer, the problems with voice and Alexa-like products for functionality, how communication can break down or be enhanced online, the problems Roll sees today in the world and what causes them, a little bit about his passion for quantum computing and potential implications. And now, without further ado, I give you Roll Vertigal. Do you meditate? I know I do, and we've talked about it a ton on the podcast. The benefits are enormous. We had Ariel Garten on the program a while back, and she founded this company called Muse. They make a neurofeedback, i.e. brain-sensing device that helps meditators, anyone really, learn to control their mind and quiet their thoughts. The science is great, and neurofeedback helps meditators achieve zen-level results in less time. I'm a big fan of meditation, as you guys probably know, and Muse is hooking listeners up with 15% off when they use our link. Disruptors.fm slash Muse. That's M-U-S-E. Disruptors.fm slash Muse if you want to take your meditation and mind to the next level. And now, let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. The future of 
interfaces looks like what we've been doing in the lab uh, 10 years ago. And yeah, and other labs in the, around the world, there's, there's many researchers that are actively working on the future of interfaces. And one of the things that I think people don't realize is that the phone they have in their hand is full of inventions that actually came out of universities 20 years ago. There's that much of a lag? Yes. Wow. So what are you working on today? What is the, what is the cutting edge? We are currently working on holograms. So those are displays that can show not just the pixel, but the angle of light. So what that means is that you can represent something in 3D, for example, and not have to wear glasses. Now, there has been various uh, iterations of this technology, but it's really getting to the point now where we're able to simulate uh, real life. And so one of the things we recently introduced is the telehuman, which is a, a teleconferencing system that can just beam you up in full size and people can walk around you and see you stand there and talk to you. Interesting. Do you think we're closer to having more mainstream adoption of a hologram type technology or uh, an AR VR in the, in the coming years? Well, I've never been a big fan of uh, VR, AR. I've done a lot of work on AR projected in the environment. So I'm not a big fan of headsets. And so I think this is one of the issues, just like with Google Glass, that's really standing in the way of this technology is that, you know, not only need, need you wear a headset, but you also need to track that headset relative to the environment, which is a difficult problem. It nauseates you. There's issues with virgins and not being able to focus properly. So I think, I think the classic sort of VR, AR style interfaces are fairly niche. And I think that the industry is starting to come to that conclusion as well. What about contact lenses? I know Google was looking into something. I'm not a big fan of augmenting the human to change perception. I'm a, I'm a big fan of altering the environment to change perception. So what I mean by that is that you can project an AR image, uh, for example, by projecting onto an object in the environment and then projection mapping. And we've seen that in various shows where, you know, you have a church or something and uh, artists project these cool graphics onto the church. The way that works is by by mimicking the, the three-dimensional model of the church in the graphics. You can actually project something on there that looks as if it's painted on there. And you can do that with regular objects. And we've been doing that for over 15 years. And how did, why, you said you were a bigger fan of projecting versus augmenting. Is that ethical or just performance reasons? No, I think, well, I think it's both. I think, I think that what we're, like, today's society is kind of characterized by um, problems with the digital domain. I think the internet has done certain things to communication that are not desirable. And 20 years ago, I started working on something called an attentive user interface, which is now in the iPhone 10. This idea that, you know, you can't consume a user's attention forever and think that there's no consequence. You need a filter. You need to filter messages coming in. Who do you get a notification from? Who do you not get a notification from? Uh, to combat things like, like smartphone addiction, right? And so I think the, the problem, the real problem with the internet is that it doesn't have filters anymore. It, there used to be something like called journalism, and that's gone out the window. I mean, I know I'm talking to a journalist, but you know what I mean. Oh, like, no, no. I, I am classic. definitely not a journalist. Let's get that one straight. Well, well the classic sort of like idea behind journalism is that certain stories you do tell, other stories you don't tell, you fact check. There's like a low-pass filter on the information, and Twitter just doesn't have that. And it's really detrimental. And so anyways, the reason I'm saying that is because, you know, if we if we embed the technology in our body or you know, or in the case of contact lenses, it becomes inescapable. And there is lots of 
philosophical problems with that. So I prefer like, and, and so to give one example, if I have these, if I have these contact lenses, you know, am I still able to talk to a normal person in a normal way? Or is that person now all of a sudden an avatar that's being generated in my world, right? So I think humans have evolved for millions of years to act in certain ways to use, for example, proximity to initiate a conversation. Skype doesn't quite work that way. And I don't think no anyone has figured out how to make these interfaces work according to norms that we've evolved to use culturally, but also biologically. You know, proximity is a pretty basic parameter, and there is not a video conferencing system or a phone that supports it. Do you think it's more proximity or eye contact, just where the cameras are based, or both? No, uh, you know, the, the two are scaffolded, right? It's, it's, it starts with proximity and uh, then body orientation. So, so if I walk up to you with my back turned towards you, I'm not really engaging in a conversation. And then when I, when I turn around, there's also head orientation, of course. And then finally, eye contact. Now, eye contact is the most powerful cue. And um, I did a lot of work for my PhD on this, you know, this notion that if people don't look at you in, in a face-to-face conversation, you basically don't talk. It's a very powerful mechanism. And, and Skype does not support it because the camera's not in the right spot. And this is one of the reasons why you need this hologram, right? Which I imagine is one of the main reasons that these massive online education programs are not all that effective. People don't complete them and the scores don't go up all that much because you've got to be focusing it. It turns out having a human there within arm's reach or at least someone you can look at and make on contact with has a significantly higher efficacy rate. Projected into the real world because the hologram behaves exactly like the normal person would behave in face-to-face conversations. And because it's a hologram, you can correct for, for eye contact because we use depth cameras, not regular cameras to shoot the video. Body orientation is a given. If I, you know, and it's multi-party by default, uh, you know, a person stands somewhere, they see exactly the angle from, from where they're looking. And so you can have a multi-party conversation and I'll see the left side of your face and the other person sees the right side of your face, just like normal. And so I, I'm really a fan of making interfaces that that learn from and implement uh, cues and, and, and ways, sort of, it's almost like a language in and of its own, these nonverbal languages that, that we've evolved with uh, for so long, and implement them. Matt here, turns out that old wives' tale about 90% of communication being nonverbal, in fact, is true. So this is why I wanted to build an eye tracker into a phone, so that your phone knows when you're looking at the screen, and for example, doesn't ring when uh, when you're looking at the screen, but gives a visual notification, so it doesn't bother others, right? These sort of like considerate interfaces, interfaces that that think about uh, what your condition is or situation is before they barge into into your office. You know, phones ring. That's already crazy. The fact that a phone just rings. You know, if if you would do that in a regular, like, let's say you're in a restaurant and there's somebody sitting at a table, and you just barge in and take over the conversation. That's what a phone does. Every time. And nobody thinks about this. And why do you think about this? I wanted to take a quick time out and give a shout out to the first principles thinking here by Roll and his team. How often do we re-examine objects in our daily life, our routines in daily life in question? Why do we do this this way? Clearly with the phones, there is something inherently broken there. Roll and his team are focusing on one of these solutions, but I imagine there are billions of billion dollar businesses just looking at who we are and what we do and why we do what we do. So I started life as a musician and, and using electronics to, to perform live music. It showed that 
how poor these interfaces are, how hard it is to express yourself in subtle ways. Like, for example, if you have a violin, you can say, well, it takes, you know, 10,000 hours to learn how to play a violin. But there's a reason for that. The thing is that your body gets fused with the hardware of the violin. You even have to hold it in a certain way against your chin to be able to convey that subtle emotional expression. And I became fixated on creating interfaces that would do that, not just in music, but also in communication. And eye contact is actually the visual equivalent of touch in a musical instrument. You, if you look a person in the eye, you change a lot of things in their brain. You, you up their psychological arousal levels. They pay better attention to what it is you're saying. They know that you're talking to them. These are very important cues that we routinely use that are lost in digital devices. So it's just, that's just one of them, right? Um, so, so our communication, our communication. So think about, for example, text messaging, right? Text messaging is probably the most impoverished way of talking to a person you could possibly imagine. Yet it's become super popular and we all, then we add, you know, emojis, emojis, but, you know, we don't really solve the fundamental problem, which is how do we convey, for example, subtlety and paralinguistics, you know, the way in which you say something using pitch structures in English, particularly, is very important in the case whether something is a joke. And if you don't do that, people might get offended. And before you know it, you're flaming. And we see the same thing happening on Twitter. Twitter is an even more impoverished interface because you only have this limited number of characters. And as a consequence, we see these very bipolar conversations appear online. And it's not necessarily just because there's a lack of filter, which is the problem number one that we talked about earlier, but also because there is a lack of negotiation channels, what they call back channels, that are very normally used in face-to-face conversation. And just, just to give one example, right? I talked about proximity. The rules of proximity are based on the ability to, to touch a person. So conversational distance kind of starts at two arm lengths and it ends at one arm length. And this is very normal, very natural. If you think about it, because you want it to be a conversation, but it becomes too intimate when I get too close because I can physically touch you. And there's also the potential for doing harm that way. You know, this is why we use our dominant hand in order to shake hands is to show that we don't have a sword in there, for example. Uh, and these are things that have evolved culturally, at least, for thousands of years. And we're not supporting them in technology at all. You know, if I, if I sit closer to my, to my camera on my laptop, I just maybe look uh, a little bit more, you know, like a fisheye lens or something. <laughs> and it doesn't really do anything to modulate the conversation. There's no way for me in a text message to really other than, you know, using some kind of symbolic form of, of negating what I just said by doing a smiley, for example. There's no there's no good way in real time to use a back channel where it would be beautiful if we could somehow incorporate pitch structures in texting. Is part of the problem here just the incentive structure? So part of it is part of it is internal to how systems are built, but part of the reason the systems are built this way is A move fast and break things, and B, what drives what drives revenue. So you're looking at things from a, a user perspective. Uh, Facebook's looking at things from how much of our, yeah. your time can we monetize? I think it's both. I think it's, you know, I, I think that one of the problems in Silicon Valley is that there is this, this focus on, on engineers and technology focused individuals who are very good at creating softwares that do very interesting things. But there seems to be hardly any respect for people in the humanities who actually study how users uh, use those tools and or not use those tools. You know, I mean, there are so many examples where, I mean, the, the classic example with Facebook, it's, it's layout. 
it's, it's layout is, is, is horrible. Uh, and, and, and it just tries to grab your attention all the time without, you know, it's perfectly possible to have a calm layout and still have an effective business model. And so that's, I think problem number one is the people that are building these things don't necessarily have the proper regard for users because they don't understand them. Um, and they don't have a psychology background to learn how to understand them. I think the second problem is indeed that these people then get empowered to go all the way to monetize. And if you have a product, like the different, the big difference between Apple and Facebook is that Apple has a product. And so in Facebook, the user is the product. And so that means you become a service. And if you then go all the way monetizing that service, there really is no limit to the amount of time that I want you to spend on Facebook. But the reality is I also have to feed my kids. I have to go to work. I have to do all these other things. And that's become a problem. And, and, and I did foresee that when I was working on, on attentive user interfaces uh, 20 years ago. But what I did not foresee was people's ability to adjust to this and adjust their norms, you know, and actually get addicted. I didn't foresee the dopamine release that you get from getting a like or giving a like or or from getting a text message. Oh, my God, somebody likes me because they sent me a text message. What's you know, who was it? That kind of instinct is being used fairly ruthlessly. And it leads to problems like Cambridge Analytica. You know, I think those two are directly tied. I realize they are separate problems, but they are tied. They're kind of the they're kind of the same problem. It's just one leads to the other. I I would definitely agree with that. I think the texting is less of a problem because typically at least you know who you're dealing with, so you're less likely to get into these type of situations. And if you are, you can forgive someone because they're a friend as opposed to uh, an evil anonymous person online. Correct, but I mean the the essence of the problem is the same: is that we have very very poor tools to communicate with, and like the for example the phone screen. Why is it so small? Why can't you have a phone screen that you can fold out like a piece of paper? And so we've designed these. And we call that organic user interface, a user interface that adapts its shape to your communication style. Why can't you use the accelerometer in your phone or the shape of your phone to communicate uh, a certain expression, right? So we've done studies on that as well, where we used uh, a phone to measure whether people could convey certain states of emotion by uh, flapping the phone or by crumbling the phone or by shaking the phone. And it turns out they can, that you can actually convey nonverbal expressions by changing the shape of your phone. That's pretty cool. Elaborate on that. Well, what we did was we had a, a, a basically a sensor laden uh, surface that was flexible. And we showed uh, participants in this experiment, a number of fairly common uh, emotional labels. These were, these were symbolic labels, but they were made in a, in a map. It's called the valence arousal map, uh, where you can actually identify a coordinate which uh, relates to a positive emotion, certain amount of that emotion, which is the arousal level. So, so we made these labels continuous because dealing with labels is complicated because if you're not identifying the correct label, you're off by an entire label. Whereas if I have some kind of continuous scale I can score this on, I can actually measure the distance. So it turned out that we had people perform these the movements with a flexible cell phone, and then we showed animations of that flexible cell phone to a completely different set of participants and asked them what the emotion was that was being conveyed. They were only off by one, usually. They may have guessed the wrong label, but if you look at where the coordinate of that label was in the valence arousal plot, they were really only off by one unit, usually, out of five. So that means you can actually use... Uh, shape in order to communicate emotion. And it's probably much more effective to do that than to send an emoticon. It may not be as easy to do that. Well, first of all, because we don't have flexible smartphones yet. 
but also we have to figure out a way to do this. But it's not like this isn't being used. Like if you listen to Jimi Hendrix on the guitar, he's got a whammy bar and he's pulling the strings. And so he's, he's communicating his emotion by, by yanking the thing. And we, so we also build a phone that does that where when you, when you, when you bend the phone, it goes like, wee, wee, you know, that, that kind of squealing sound from a guitar and it's beautiful. You know, that's the kind of interfaces we need. We need, we need more subtle ways of interacting that actually correspond to our modalities of processing emotion. So let me let me see if I get this. I can I could definitely guess. I have I have a paper phone in my hand. I get pissed off. I crush it in my hand. But how are some of the other <laughs> how are some of the other emotions being represented just instinctually? Or did you did you tell people what to do? No, we didn't tell them what to do. But to give a very uh, easy one, uh, uh, people would make a smiley by curving the phone upwards, or or a sad face by curving the phone downwards. And then the amount of curvature or the amount of flapping they did in this process would be, you know, how happy they were or how sad were. And what they're doing is they're actually mapping um, shapes that you find in human facial expressions and body expressions to an inanimate object. And then and then on the other side, people are interpreting those shapes by the same kind of neurons that you use in order to interpret, for example, a smile or or a dejected body p- posture. And uh, movement is super critical there. It's not just about it's not just about the shape. It's also about how the shape moves. People are able to identify other people using just five points. You have five markers on a body. You record that. Uh, you sh- you play back just those points. People will be able to tell, oh, that's a human or that's a dog because they're so good at processing motion. Now, of course, if you want to do this with a smartphone, you need to have a robotic so- smartphone that is able to actually shape shifting. And there are researchers working on that as well. And we have done some work on that. So, you know, if you ask me, where's the future? I think the future is in creating technologies that are less like, you know, the graphical user in the face of yesteryear. And that maybe are more like musical instruments that are more expressive. And that doesn't necessarily need to be AI. You know, I mean, humans have a great capacity to communicate between each other. You don't necessarily need to interpret it. Interesting. I want to I want to dive a little deeper. So we discussed the we discussed a paper phone a little bit. And this has been a big focus of your research is flexible interfaces. I want to I want to dive into that a little deeper. What's the work that you've been doing? And what's a time horizon for when we could start to see a flexible phone, a flexible computer hit the market? Well, we, we did our first flexible interface in 2004. So at 15 years, so that would be 2019. If that isn't a little bit mind-blowing, that it takes 15 plus years for technology to get from research into commercial use, then I don't know what is. It really is that simple. <laughs> um, so I expect next year to, to be some kind of, it probably won't be a fully flexible phone, but uh, some kind of foldable phone where basically you have a flap on your phone. And if you open up that flap, you'll have a continuous screen. Uh, so the screen will bend and you've got twice the amount of re- screen real estate. What's the actual mechanism? How are you doing that? Was it projection initially? Initially, we used the same kind of projection mapping I was referring to earlier. So it's a form of augmented reality. And then we had to wait about six years while we were doing other prototypes. We did, we did, you know, projection on, on a Coke can to make a virtual container. We did, uh, uh, projection on stickies. Uh, we built our own cameras to track these things. We did a lot of stuff, but. Uh, after about six years in 2010, I finally got my first flexible display and it was an, an, uh, an e-ink screen uh, that was created by the American military. And we used that to create paper phone, the world's first flexible smartphone. Are you more enthusiastic about paper phone or about a uh, flexible paper just for compute? Yeah, we, we then did redid some of the early work, which was based on paper. And I think they're complementary. I think, um, you know, I, I think the idea of bending. So why would you want to bend your phone? Why would you want to bend a bullet phone? 
Well, aside from the fact that you can throw it on the floor and it doesn't uh, break its glass because it doesn't have glass and it fits in your pocket and curves according to your body. What's really nice about Bend is that it actually reflects interacting in the Z dimension, in the third dimension. So, for example, if we browse through a book, we flip the pages instead of swiping them. Swiping is actually quite a heavy energy load on your thumb, and people are getting issues with that ergonomically. Whereas if you just bend the, the book cover, you can actually change the rate at which pages flip. And so we built that. If you're interacting with 3D models, we've done a holographic version of a phone called Holoflex, which shows a hologram of a 3D model, and you can edit it by bending the phone in the Z dimension. So you can use touch for X, Y, and then bend it for, for the Z. So I think, I think bending is really critical for, for Z operations, operations that are away from you. But if you look at the paper computer, like paper tab, which we did in 2013, there is a whole other dimension that has to do with multitasking, with the fact that, you know, we, we only use one display right now. And, and it's either your smartphone or your iPad or your computer. Sometimes people use them in conjunction, but they don't really interoperate very well. Hey, Matt here. Quick timeout. Roll's about to blow your mind. If I told you the future was paper, would you believe me? Um, whereas with paper, if I print out a document, I can look at the last page while I'm looking at the first page. So I can multitask much better. And the displays are, what, one cent? So I can have as many displays as I want. So we need to move in the direction of displays being cheap and almost expendable. Where Now, how does this play into, for example, apps? Well, it means I can have one display per app. So I can have a display that has this app and a display that has that app. And I can just put them somewhere on my table. And I can also interoperate between those so that if I want to cut, copy, and paste something, I can just do that with a gesture from one display to the next. And this is exactly how we work with paper. And so paper is still still has a place in the office because of that, because it is actually richer in its quote-unquote means of expression than a traditional display is, which is always rigid, square. Absolutely. And it's just so much better taking notes versus writing them down in terms of retention and in terms of follow-up later on. It's a... Yeah. It's very interesting. Do you view what you're working on as somewhat competitive with current AR or VR tech? Uh, um, I know. I, as I said, I've always been somewhat down on on AR and VR for, for reasons I've explained. So I don't really feel the competition because I I strongly feel that the work that we're doing now will supplant it. I don't think AR VR will be a generic success. I think it'll be niche. There, there's it's great for experiences. It's great for training. I'm sure it'll do well in the porn industry, but you know, to this idea that I would be composing a, a word document on my wall with gestures, you know, that's just that's just not going to happen because if anything, the ergonomics are not right. You know, in-air gestures are not very comfortable. You want to have support. And, and paper is a beautiful metaphor. So why not just use paper? And and that then means use a flexible display. I mean, obviously, you can use projection to simulate it. But if you have the display, why not just use the display? Right. So I foresee a future where you just have a stack of, of digital paper. It's like thinnest thinnest paper and and you can have as many as you want, 20, 20 documents or something like that. And you can either use them to render one PDF document or you can have different apps on them. They're interoperable. They work together as if they were Windows on a computer. The only reason we have Windows on a computer, by the way, is because we only have one display. So we have to carve out these task, these task areas uh, artificially, you know. Anyways, back to the question AR, VR. I don't think AR, VR is going to make it. And I think that this technology will. Light field displays are going to be a thing. But, and, and probably every display will be a light field display, but I, it's hard to tell when exactly, I would say within, within 15 years or so from now. And how does that tie into voice as an interface and the, the potential synergies? Yeah, we did a fair bit of work on uh, Look the Talk back in the day where, you know, it, it, we envisioned IoT and the ability to control your 
objects in the house with your voice. But of course, there was one big elephant in the room. And that's how do you target the object? And the obvious answer was through eye contact. So that was one of the reasons we developed the iconic sensor is so we could stick it on an object and be able to tell that you're looking at the object. And then when I say off, that light bulb goes off or that TV goes off. And I don't have to go like, oh, TV in the living room or, you know, left uh, light bulb in the kitchen. So this hasn't been addressed by industry yet, but I'm sure that'll come. Speech interaction is problematic for that reason, is that we cannot perform DEXs because we don't have those nonverbal channels I was talking about earlier. Now, humans do this routinely. They look at someone, they say something, the person just understands that, oh, uh, he or she is talking to me. Uh, objects don't have that feature. So then you have to use symbols. And that's almost like a command line interface. So when when speech interaction becomes like a command line interface, we've actually made a step backwards because one of the features of a graphical interface is recognition versus recall. You know, if I if I pull down a menu, I can never make a mistake as to what command I issue to the system because they're all there and I can only select the ones that are visible. Whereas with speech or with a command line, I have to come up, I have to recall what the command is and and then say it. And there's lots of mistakes that can be made process. So speech and our speech is often seen as the holy grail of interaction. But, you know, here's another problem with speech. Repair. If you if you talk to a human being and they don't understand what it is you're saying, they might interfere or, or interrupt, it's called, and ask a question or or show with a nonverbal expression they're not quite following. And then you adjust your speech so that there is a common understanding. That's called grounding. There's a professor at Stanford called Herb Clark that came up with that. So conversation is really about a feedback loop in which you create this grounding process. I don't know of any conversational interface where a computer engages in ground. It's like, Alexa, you know, order this. Um, it's, it's all command driven. And, and so until speech becomes similar to the way humans use it with therefore also a similar intelligence interpreting that speech and understanding when you don't understand and being able to repair, I think it's, it's, you know, it has gadget value. It, it's not a real interface and certainly it will not supplant touch interaction. Have you seen the Google Duplex demos? Uh, yes, uh, remind me. Uh, Google, basically a, a voice assistant to call up shops. They call up a Chinese food restaurant. Right. Uh, those seem terrifyingly yes. futuristic. Obviously, those were their best case scenarios. Those were the most successful ones. But those seemed those seemed to be able to catch catch mismatches. So what you're going to hear is the Google assistant actually calling a real salon to schedule an appointment for you. Let's listen. Hi, I'm calling to book a woman's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May 3rd. Sure, give me one second. Mm-hmm. Sure, what time are you looking for around? At 12 p.m. Oh, it's definitely wrong. Well, that's exactly the kind of example of, like, engineers that go, like, oh, I can actually pretend that this is a real human and, you know, ha-ha, nobody, nobody realizes it's a, it's a computer. We did well. But they, they throw the baby out with the, bo- the bathwater, right? They, they don't understand that maybe I don't want people to think that this is a person. I mean, maybe it would be appropriate for them to know that this is my digital assistant. So they realize that the digital assistant might make certain mistakes, right? This idea of sort of photorealistic re- rendering is, is not necessarily a good one. It's a nice technological end goal. There's a, there's a conference called SIGGRAPH that's all about that. You know, how can we render graphics as, as realistic or as beautiful as possible? But, then you see movies like Pixar makes and you notice that they actually pull back from graphic realism and they put a filter on it. They literally put a filter on their communication. And that's really interesting, right? So, so this ability to do stuff as if it's like, you know, as if it's mimicking 
realism is not necessarily an end goal that will lead to an effective interface. An effective interface is a caricature, just like you're a caricature when you're a dad or when you're at work. You know, we, we humans have these roles. They, they, they play different roles. When you talk to a two, to a two year old, you talk very differently from when you talk to your wife, from when you talk to your boss. And we're able to switch these contexts and use these roles, but those are essentially their caricatures. We have, we have our own caricatures and, and caricatures communicate really well. Brenda Laurel wrote a book about this a long, long time ago, 30 years ago, Computers as Theater. And so this research has all been done. These are all known things, yet engineers at, for example, Google and other places don't read that or or just don't have that as their goal. And I think that leads to issues that then magnify because we have billions of users using these technologies. No disagreement from me. I want to transition a little bit now. So part of the program is also looking at not just your expertise, but other fields of interest. So what else are you looking at or interested in these days? I'm very interested in quantum physics right now. <laughs> I kind of want to build a quantum computer. So yeah, quantum physics is amazing. How deep are you into the quantum rabbit hole? Pretty, pretty deep. Yeah, pretty deep. Okay. And you learn things that where you go like, really? You know, like, like, for example, a photon, right? So one single particle of light actually travels every possible path before it decides to render itself somewhere. And, and the rendering itself is fairly arbitrary, but, but the, the ultimate path that wins is the one of least action. It's the laziest path. It's not the shortest path necessarily. It's the, it's the path that takes the least time. And this is why lenses work. Well, that's just astounding. When I hear quantum explained, it sounds to me like the easiest way to explain quantum computing would be a running of a simulation and just a, a massive simul. It gives credence, at least for me, to simulation theory. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that is what they are right now, for the most part, because I don't think that a real quantum computer no, no, not um, not in terms of really what, not in terms of what quantum is, but to be able to explain the the quantum physics that we see today, it almost seems like someone coded a computer with some some statements, and that's what we're seeing. Yeah, but the, but the, the essence of quantum computers is that you can do many calculations at once. So to go back to what I said earlier about the the light particle traveling every possible path and then deciding to take one, that's really the power of a quantum computer is that it can. Because what we're dealing with is a probabilistic function. It's called a wave function, but it really is just the wave function doesn't necessarily describe anything, right? It doesn't describe reality. It's just a, a parameter set that is described by a waveform. And then that waveform takes one particular setting of a parameter once it interacts with another waveform, for example, an electron. So photons interact with electrons. And it, a photon will only render itself once it's interacted with an electron. So it kind of doesn't exist until it interacts. And that's when you see it, right? It interacts with the electrons in your retina, for example. So that probability function is really literally taking every possible state that it could possibly have simultaneously. And if you can somehow influence the chance of particle rendering itself in a particular state with, for example, a particular electron spin, then you can do a calculation massively parallel. And that's what everybody's after. But to do so, most of the approaches have used uh, electrons that have to be super cooled and put in magnets because they can't interact with other electrons. Because the moment this probability function interacts with its environment with another wave function, so the moment an electron interacts with another electron, it renders itself as a particle. And then that massive parallelism is gone because it renders itself in a particular spot with a particular parameter set, right? So that's the trick is to keep it suspended somehow. So, so it stays in that state. And right now, the best quantum computers, I think, can do that for like, I don't know, nanoseconds, <laughs> a few nanoseconds, and then it loses that state. 
So you want to build a quantum computer. How serious are you about this? No, I don't, I don't know how serious I am about it, but I'm, it's a nice hobby. <laughs> it yeah. keeps me, uh, it keeps me occupied. <laughs> you gotta, get, you gotta get out to Waterloo. They're, they're doing quite well out there is my understanding, at least in terms of cutting edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there's, uh, definitely a lot of action there at the Perimeter Institute. And, uh, we also have a, a great group, uh, at our physics department, uh, which won the, uh, the Nobel Prize in Physics, uh, two years ago. And, uh, that group is in photonics and they, they're working with photonic crystals and, one of the things that they're look, working on is, is, is these quantum dots, which, you know, you see play marketing efforts for, for TVs now. Um, so this idea that you can actually resonate light in a particular cavity of a particular size and then filter certain colors and make displays out of that is very interesting. But it's something that nature figured out a long time ago. This is how peacock feathers work. You know, if you ever wondered why a, a black bird radiates in the sun, it's, it's because of it's using small holes. And those holes don't fit the wavelengths of different colors the same way. And therefore, at different angles, you get this kind of rainbow effect. Interesting. That's a, that's a good one for Jeopardy for anyone who's listening. So, so, <laughs> so quant, quantum computing, are, are there any other fields that you're excited or scared about today? Yeah, before we go there, uh, there, there is, by the way, there is a good purpose for us to be working on quantum computing. And that was the original purpose that Richard Feynman said in his original paper, which is if you want to simulate these interactions, uh, traditional computers can't do it because it's just madly parallel. So you need a quantum computer in order to simulate uh, quantum states, quantum interactions. And so we need a quantum computer because we want to do holograms. And if we were to use a quantum computer to calculate holograms, we would be so much faster. You know, one of the problems with these holograms is that you need massive amounts of calculations because you need to calculate every possible direction that a library can go into. So I just want to say that there is, there is, there, there is a connection between so the interface work we're doing and my interest in, in quantum mechanics. But but yeah, there 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 of course there are many technologies that that are very interesting that we don't work on. You know, uh, I I think that for example what what Elon Musk is trying to do with Tesla is very interesting and 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 with SpaceX and you know I sometimes bump into people that are uh, working on asteroid mining for example or that want to bring robots to the moon or put a moon base in place and and I sometimes wonder you know what that drive is that makes us want to leave you know. So I, I was I was the guy who stood up at one of these conferences and asked the nasty question to one of these guys. He's like, but why would we terraform Mars? If we could, if we had the technology to terraform Mars, would it not be much more appropriate to use it to fix Earth? Because that would be so much easier because it's so hard to terraform Mars, presumably. I, and I, I like Elon's reasoning. Yeah, go here. ahead. I like Elon's reasoning here. Essentially a backup plan. So right now, if anything happens yeah, on, yeah. on Earth, there's a lot of potentials. Essentially, we're screwed. So to to get to sustainability, we need to have, at least according to his calculations, roughly 3 million people on Mars so that we don't get all completely inbred. Well, uh, you know, I mean, I think the only argument that really holds here is that it may only have a short technological window with the technology to do that. And that our society might go back into a dark age. You know, I think that's the only convincing argument. And this could be, in fact, a very convincing argument. This is one of the possibilities of the Fermi filter, so to speak, where... We haven't discovered or detected alien life forms with any advanced forms of intelligence. And one of the possible theories is that alien species reach a certain breaking point, so to speak, where they wipe each other out. What rules referencing is, are we potentially in a scenario like this, whereby we have nuclear weapons and the ability to destroy the world hundreds of times, if not millions of times over? Could we be in a situation where we need a backup plan because we're a little bit too, uh, a little bit too rambunctious and crazy of species? I don't know. I don't have a good answer for it, but I like that Roll brings this up because it is an interesting point and definitely validates the, the need for space exploration. But I still think that 
we're spending so much money and so much effort and so many resources on on these endeavors when if that money was spent in an appropriate way. And we all know NGOs are able to waste a lot of money from donations. So I'm not sure what an appropriate way is. But for example, the uh, Villanueva Gates Foundation seems to have a, developed a very effective method for uh, for addressing issues in underdeveloped nations. You know, and it, it, is it not possible for us to address, for example, this plastic mess that's in the in the ocean now? And there are people that are trying to do that. You know, there's a Dutch teenager actually who set up a, an expedition to go and, uh, and fish for the for the big plastic um, island in the uh, in the in the Pacific and, and and see if he can remove it. But of course, what we need to do is actually get rid of plastic bags, get rid of plastic, and start going back to uh, biodegradable packaging. You know, and of course, there are people working on that as well. But I'm just I'm just saying, it, you know, going to Mars seems like a huge detractor, and it's just one of those things. I would much rather cut the defense budget than cut what's going into Mars. Um, my my thought process is, yeah. if you look at if you look at what happened, I'm a big fan of JFK had a speech of something to the effect of, uh, "We go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard." I like to append on that. And drove 90 plus percent of the innovation technology and profit of the coming decades. If you just look at what came out of the space race, there was some incredible technology. Yeah, but, but to give you some sort of neo-Luddite perspective, it's also important to recognize that the only reason the space race ever happened was because we were in a cold war with Russia and, and it became a proxy war. It was like, if we can develop, you know, if we can show our technology, technological prowess, then they won't attack us because they'll be too scared to. And, and that's the, we only had a short window of that. You know, it was like, what, six years or something like that, that we, we went to the moon. And it was just way too expensive. Time out. What are you listening to this on? I imagine it's on your phone, maybe a web player, etc. Either way, you're using some computer and space era te- technologies. What Roll's about to say, the results of the space program, and specifically money that NASA had left over that decided to throw it an incredible project, is mind-blowing in its, in its change and impact on the world. And... uh all of you Steve Jobs fans, I hope you're listening up. But I do agree with you that a lot of technologies, including the graphical user interface, I, I talked to Alan Kay, who was the genius behind Steve Jobs. He invented, he invented uh, optical programming. He invented uh, much of the graphical user interface and the, and, the, and the personal computer that became the Macintosh. And um, so he had brilliant insights into how all this, where this came from. And he said, look, there was a $10 million leftover budget from NASA. <laughs> And that went to Doug Milbard and some other people at Stanford, and they used it to build the mouse and the graphical user interface. And if that leftover budget hadn't been there, we wouldn't have had it. Sometimes the ends justify the means. And I think for the space race, even yeah, it yeah, was a missing contest, it, it ended up yeah, it was, net net positive. Yeah, I think so. But I mean, it is scary. And but I mean, this is this also relates to so. So another thing that I've been thinking about a lot is this sort of like uh, the value of technology and, and technology being a neutral actor or not being a neutral actor. And, you know, I think I think technologies uh, and Marshall McLuhan, you know, already knew this a long time ago, you know, that technology, sh- we first we shape a technology and then the technology shapes us. And that's really what he meant by um, the medium is the message. You know, when you when you create a new medium like like a smartphone, like like the web, like Facebook, social networks. You actually affect how people work, interact, do business, everything. And that is really what the message is. And that is really what we should be designing. So when we're, when we're designing technologies, we shouldn't focus on per se, just on the multi-touch or, or the way in which you click a button and, but also on the larger societal implications and the ecologies of use that stem from introducing a new technology. And, and of course, weapons are a good example of that. But I mean, you know, I mean, nuclear 
uh, nuclear fission can be used in order to create energy or it can be used to create a nuclear bomb. And I think the simplistic view is that it then becomes an ethical choice from the user or by the user to decide whether you weaponize something or not. And we've seen this with, with Cambridge Analytica and, and political campaigns, which are highly unethical in some cases. Uh, but it's, it's, it really, that's too simplistic a view. Any tool shapes the world. And so the moment a tool gets born, it shapes the world. And so you can be worried about AI as a tool, but I think you can worry pretty much about anything. You know, I mean, Monsanto and it's, and it's, uh, roundup seeds and, you know, changing the ecology of, of, uh, of how pollination works, for example. There are many examples and we need to, I think as if we want to advance our understanding and, and truly become advanced as a species, we need to understand those interactions better. Well, let's, uh, let's play devil's advocate. I'm not going to say I disagree, but how do we, how do we decide what the time frame is for making a strong decision? So if we have to make important decisions or if we have to slow down innovation for the, for the process of testing and seeing how it affects people, then at that point, you're, you're kind of listening to the, the podcast at half speed. It gets, it gets boring and th- bad things can happen. No, I, I disagree. I think, uh, you know, we started this by discussing how, you know, if you want to know the future of interaction, all you need to go do is visit a laboratory at a university uh, today. And, and, and so there's a 15 year window. And that 15 year window is very often used, at least by people in my field, to do these experiments. You know, every pro, we're, we're known for our gadgets and we're known for our, our prototypes, but every prototype we build, we do a study, a limited study, usually only 15 users, so, but we do some kind of study to show that it's valuable or, or what its value is. And I think where, where things break down is not because there's no time. There's lots of time. You know, you can, you can, you can study the implications of a technology. You've got 15 years to do so. The problem is that that is a simulation that's hard to run. It's hard to envision what happens when the genie comes out of the bottle. I don't think I could have predicted that Cambridge Analytica would be the result of social networks. But you also couldn't, right. you also couldn't uh, have predicted so, how empowering it would be for certain people in third world countries. So there, there's always two sides of the coin. That's the only thing I'm trying to point out. Yeah. No, but I'm saying there's, there's definitely time to research this. There's definitely time to, to run these simulations, but there's a very limited interest by the purveyors of these technologies to do so. You know, some of the big tech corporations do indeed run, uh, big usability labs and to see how they can make their products more efficient. But, you know, we, we run these experiments on a societal scale and it, it gets even worse when, in fact, the intent is wrong. You know, I mean, I know Facebook, for example, runs these experiments where they have 100,000 users use a slightly different interface or, or a slightly different way of doing things. Those are social experiments. And that's actually already kind of interesting that, that they have the power to do so. But I'm not necessarily talking about that. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, what does it mean to introduce a Facebook into the world? And how does that affect everything else? You know, that's a philosophical question. And I, I think I actually think that philosophy is underrated in today's society. You know, I'm a technology maker, so I'm like the wizard of Oz who creates these new miracles, you know, 15 years ahead of time. And that's cool. But there is this, all these implications that require all of the breadth of human knowledge, not just computer science, not just engineering, but uh, physics, uh, but also the, the humanities uh, to be able to understand the implications of these technologies better. And that means we need to fund these these areas. And I know I keep harping on about universities. You know, it's a, it's an ecosystem, right? There's universities, there's businesses, there's startups. But I, I, I get the feeling that, that, that in today's society, there's such a focus on startups and such a focus on disruptive, you know, innovation done by corporations. And the reality is that that's just not true. You know, most of the disruptions come from the public sector and come from taxpayer dollars. Uh, there's a huge disconnect there uh, because there's no incentive for startups 
to demonstrate where these technologies came from. In fact, if anything, it's a negative incentive. So if we could somehow come to a better and less adversarial relationship between the private and the public sectors, I think that would be hugely beneficial for humanity. Would it, would that just be scientists and researchers taking products to market? No, I think there's, you know, there's, you know, we, we tend not to go much beyond prototype because it's just very hot. It takes about the same amount of effort to invent something and make a prototype and maybe study the prototype and then it falls apart to then take that prototype and make it cheap enough for a mass market and small enough to be able to fit in something. And, you know, I mean, that the efforts are, are enormous and they are complementary. But the problem is, is that there's no interface. You know, there's, there's, it would be nice to have a handoff or to be able to uh, loop back. So I know, for example, Judith Donut did a lot of work, early work on social networks at MIT. It'd be nice to see her in a top spot at Facebook to sort of talk about what not to do and how to dial the whole thing back. Because if you want to create a sustainable business, you can't just suck your users dry. You have to actually, you have to have a long-term vision. And I think one of the things academics definitely do have that that is less common in, in, in uh, I think in, in in the startup environment is these is these long-term visions of like 20 years. Amen. There, the the quarterly earnings and CEO bonuses and stock market completely ruin that. That's part of the point of Fringe FM is we're trying to have a longer time horizon, 100 years, so we can get yeah. It's uh if you and don't have that, it doesn't that. it doesn't work otherwise. Short term short term screws up the incentives much too much. Yes. So and that's the society we live in. I know you've got limited time. It is the society we live in. It's the one where we're both trying to change. Outside of what we've talked about, what's the biggest problem that you want li- listeners to focus on or try to solve? There's so many. I don't know where to start. I, I mean, the environment has a really important place in my heart. You know, we live in a beautiful country here in Canada. And, you know, I, one of the things that, that I've been trying to do outside of my work is to help people understand that there are areas of uh, biodiverse, biodiversity that are a little bit more special than other areas. And that this can change within a one kilometer range from place to place. And if you live in a country where, you know, there's, there's what, 33 million people in the second largest country in the world, you would think there's enough space for everyone. You would think that you can just build, right? Build, build, build. And that is a little bit the attitude here. Uh, we're seeing that in Toronto, but we're seeing it all elsewhere as well. And, uh, so I think one of the things that's very close to my heart is that it would be very nice if, if, if townships and, and, and councils and, the powers that decide these kinds of things would consider better uh, what the biodiversity is of an area before they build, uh, because the impact of building in biodiverse areas is much, much bigger than the impact of building in not so biodiverse areas. So that's one of the topics I've been working on trying to educate people. I think I think there's concerns of electricity use. I've been engaging a little bit with the Bitcoin community about that. You know, the fact that Bitcoin mining requires uh, the, the electricity of about the size country of Ireland or something. I'm not too sure how, how much it is, but that's unsustainable, right? So we need a different kind of blockchain that doesn't require that kind of crazy electricity use. It's a really bad idea. Roll Echo's previous guest, Rob Hopkins, who was on discussing some of the woes of Bitcoin and blockchain energy usage. While that may in fact be a problem today, I find cryptocurrency and blockchain fascinating. I had Kyle Samani on the program. If you haven't listened to that episode, I recommend you go to fringe.fm and search for Kyle or Kyle Samani. He's a founding partner at Multicoin Capital, uh, influential crypto hedge fund, and focused on investing in the platforms and internets of the future. Very interesting. Highly recommend it. But now back. Um, and, and so we're, you know, we're, we're engaging in many of these ideas that seem good at the time, but then we, we just don't understand the implication that it has on nature, on energy use, on, sustain, on sustainability. And, um, and I'm, I'm guilty as charged. I mean, I have no idea what the effect is, the net effect is of our telehuman technology on the environment because i mean we do use you know 
hundreds of projectors. They're only Pika projectors. They don't use very much energy, but I haven't done the equation. And I was actually talking to my student this, students this, uh, this week about potentially writing a cradle to grave analysis paper about that because holograms give you the opportunity to cut down on travel and therefore change the greenhouse gas equation. But they also are quite intense in terms of its use of resources itself, in terms of electricity, computational power, uh, manufacturing. What's that equation? It'd be interesting to actually look at that bigger picture. The path, to, the path to hell is paved in good intentions. I think that can be a summary of a lot of what we've talked about is generally speaking, there are good intentions that go awry. Yeah. And if we take a little bit of a long-term view, I think we might be able to just see that coming at least. I don't know if we can stop it. That's a, that's a classic cop-out for a guy like me, right? It's like, well, you know, do you ever consider nefarious use of your technologies? And, and then the cop-out is, well, you know, I mean, this, this sort of. It's not a cop-out. Like is neutral kind of, a, kind of argument. So, well, uh, the cop-out is, the cop-out is that I'm just inventing this. And then if people are evil, they'll use it for evil. And if they're, if they're good, they use it for good. But, but what the cop-out is, is that, that technology, as I said, always has a value. It is not just good or bad. It's not neutral either. It always changes society. And you need to think about these things. But generally speaking, it empowers humans to be what humans will be with it. So you, you, yeah, yes, for sure. You could, you could make the argument that you should think about it ahead of time. But sometimes you hear people and they attack Facebook and Google like, didn't you realize that people would be executing people on your Facebook Live thing? And I think there's a problematic between right. inherently being optimistic and inherently being pessimistic. So the criticizers are t- generally pessimists and the builders are yeah, more often it, optimists. Yeah, and I, I, I'm definitely an optimist, but I then see people who used to work for Facebook who were actually telling us that they did this by design. Not necessarily the execution videos, but a lot of the other stuff. You know, that there was an active uh, oh, approach to, they hired to guys selling fairly... To, to sell these nefarious uses. And, and so, you know, I think, I think we live in an age where, where I think moral considerations are also important. You know, it's not just foreseeing what the, how the tool shapes the world, but also how can we make sure that our children grow up in a moral environment? You know, where, uh, how many times do I hear undergrads say, like, it's a, it's a dog eat dog world out there? And like, it doesn't have to be like, and by saying so, you make it that. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that there is somewhat of a moral breakdown in our society or, or a breakdown of morals. And I, I don't want to get into religion and, and how that interplays, but, but it definitely has something to do with that short term filter. Like just people just live in the moment and don't seem to quite understand the consequences of what they're doing because they don't look beyond Q3 or the next election. Right. Connectivity um, in real time. So I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And I don't know necessarily how to change that vote other than through things that you're doing, which I really appreciate is to, is to talk about this on uh, on a podcast and 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 hopefully make people more aware of the of these kinds of issues, you know, when they're just struggling to make ends meet. But I, I don't have a I don't have a silver bullet. I don't have a good answer. I mean, I can I can see some paths that we could take, and I've already mentioned one, which is better funding for the humanities and 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 for startups to actually interact with their humanities and for startups to interact with universities in a way that's not adversarial. It's like, oh, yeah, it's my patent. No, it's my patent, you know, that kind of thing. But beyond that, you know, how can we return to journalism? You know, that genie's out of the bottle. It's going to be very difficult to return to to the filters that we had in place that good for good or for bad were not showing us those executions because there was an unwritten law that you wouldn't show blood on TV, right? And I don't want to be, I don't want to be all negative either because I, I think we're seeing both positive and negative through the internet. Like one of the coolest things about, about the internet is that all this information is there. And if you want to learn something, you know, it's there and you can just learn it. Uh, like, for example, if I want to know more about quantum physics, there's whole YouTube channels on that. And I can listen to world experts. And if I, 
have done in my research, I will be able to follow them and learn something as if I was in the classroom with them. That's astounding that we can do that, right? So it's not all bad, but I think it would be nice if we could steer society towards the good use of the technologies versus the bad use. And that may just be, you know, uh, I know a little bit too, a little bit of overreach on my part to think that that's even possible. We may have to go totalitarian to get there, or we may be moving towards <laughs> a post-capitalist society. People kind of laugh when you say yeah. it, but I mean, if you see the number of people eating at McDonald's, then you can see where sometimes social control is important. But let's let's not get into that. Well, I, but I mean, it doesn't. No, no. But I, I do want to say that that this this sort of like this. I you don't have to go totalitarian to have some form of of social control. And and I grew up in a country called the Netherlands, where in the time was sort of like a social democracy. And, and capital, capitalism didn't didn't uh, govern everything, right? Uh, so I think ways in which our society can be less extreme, less adversarial. And I think that the technologies, the, the reason I think this is relevant within the conversation is because our technologies are, are creating those even somewhat artificial sort of adversarial politics by creating echo chambers where you just hear your own voice. And maybe we should have an anti-technology, right? For every technology, there's an anti-technology that is the antidote. And, and, and I do think about these things now. And I think it's urgent. Pro tip, guys. Facebook newsfeed eradicator. It gets rid of all of Facebook except the messaging functionality, which is the only thing that really matters. Exactly. Roll, thanks for coming on. Where's the best place for people to find you? Human Media Lab uh, on the Queen's University campus uh, in Kingston, Ontario. And we will throw links and all the good stuff in the show notes. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been a fun and interesting conversation. You're welcome. Thank you so much. We believe credibility is king. You may have noticed that Fringe FM, unlike most other podcasts, isn't filled with three minutes of ads at the beginning and end of every episode for comfy mattresses, better hiring or conferencing software, or robotic doorbells. And that's not that advertisers haven't asked. The thing is, if we tried to sell you on buying our advertisers' products, that would require deception and a level of misalignment and lack of open transparency and trust that we think podcasting in this medium necessitates. Would you trust someone who turned around and tried to sell you shit? We wouldn't. The online ads-based ecosystem is killing our political and societal world. We're used to getting something for nothing and are thus stuck in a clickbaity society of Trumpian tweets focused on extracting attention and avoiding the real meaningful issues and conversations. To fix this, we need to start paying for things that we value. Otherwise, it's all BuzzFeed from here on out. So before you go, if you like Fringe FM and believe our mission to be important, consider making a tax-deductible donation. Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a registered 501c3 nonprofit focused on advancing science worldwide. That means you can write off your donation for tax purposes and possibly even get your employer to match the donation, all of which would drastically boost the level of good that we can do in the world and the quality of show we can produce. To learn more about supporting Fringe FM and whether your gift would qualify to reduce your taxes, please visit fringe.fm give for more information. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.